Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Back. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Today on the program, Natrona County School District will soon launch a new education model for high school students. We have a different approach, and a lot of kids would be more successful if school ran a different way. We'll hear about the controversial electronic betting games known as historic horse racing machines. These games bring in tens of millions of dollars a year in Wyoming, but were shut down last month by state officials. Well, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. The bottom line is they are a slot machine. And we will learn that coal can be made into all sorts of things, from gas to ammonia to products that are wearable. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Bob Beck. In Wyoming, as in other coal-dependent states, climate change is sometimes outright denied or more often simply ignored. But its effect in Wyoming is unavoidable. Demand for coal is shrinking, as is the state's revenue from it. And so, Wyoming is looking to work with other coal giants like China to figure out what to do with coal aside from burn it. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. Mini pump jacks bob up and down, highlighted by strings of flashing lights. A smokestack rises up in the middle, ringed by tiny trees and streets. The model is so intricate and so strangely dollhouse-like that members of our group pepper our translator with questions. The coal is underneath there, is that correct? Trying to figure out what on earth we're looking at. So what's going on over there? I traveled to China with members of a small Wyoming policy group called the Jackson Hole Center for Global Affairs. Part of the trip, the days spent in the country's top coal-producing province, was organized and paid for by the local government. On this day, we crowded around a model of a demonstration plant owned by a Chinese coal company called the Shanxi Luan Mining Group. Outside, we got a look at the real thing, a massive tangle of chrome and billowing smokestacks. It's an experimental facility that turns coal into liquids. That is uh, the gasification area. Gasification is generally the first step in making coal into products like diesel and ammonia. But it usually uses tons of water and releases massive amounts of CO2. This plant is experimenting with ways to clean up that process. Ben Yamagatov is a lobbyist and the executive director of a D.C.-based group called the Coal Utilization Research Council. He's impressed. It's quite an in- incredible uh, demonstration facility, and I've not seen anything like this uh, anywhere. China is turning coal into other products like nowhere else. The Department of Energy estimates that it has around 190 gasification plants in operation or under construction. That's nearly 10 times the number in this country. And so Wyoming, as our largest coal-producing state, is looking to collaborate with China on how to make coal into products other than electricity, everything from tennis rackets to socks. And I would bet that nearly every American 
has got one item of clothing in their closet at least that started out as Chinese coal. Mark Northam was on this same China trip. He's the director of the University of Wyoming School of Energy Resources. UW is part of an international collaboration on clean coal technology, including countries like Australia and China. These joint research projects and university exchanges are all underscored with urgency as global pressure builds to address climate change. For Wyoming, there's another goal as well. From our point of view, this is about preserving the market for coal. The trick is doing that while cleaning up conversion. They call it re-engineering coal to gas using lower temperatures, pressurizing the coal without burning it. Instead of combusting the coal, we are refining the coal so we don't go through that carbon dioxide pathway in the first place. But bringing this technology to a commercial scale? Northam's colleague Richard Horner described the possibility this way. So the ideal solution would be to take all of that carbon, deliberately manage it, and to make products so that you have zero emission of CO2. Of course, that may be a dream, but we certainly want to move towards that dream. And as for Northam's own vision of Wyoming's future? 20 years from now, I would say fewer mines, more industry, a lot more manufacturing, the rail cars full of products rather than coal cars hauling lumps of coal to power plants. Wyoming is fighting hard to keep coal on the market no matter the form. Why? Because revenue from it accounts for a whopping 25 percent of the state's budget. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. How much coal does a Wyoming coal miner mine? Quite a bit less than he used to, it turns out. Regulations have received most of the blame for coal's current dire straits, but that's not the whole story. It's also getting more expensive to mine in the nation's largest coal-producing state. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. Cloud Peak Energy is one of the biggest coal miners in Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Over the past few months, the company has been in the process of moving a giant machine called a drag line from one mine to another. At the reassembly site, surrounded by the noise of welders and heavy machinery, engineer Ben Hawks explains it's been an enormous undertaking. We had to cut it into several large pieces to move down the county roads. Even cut into pieces, the drag line was still too big. They had to get help from the local utility company. We had Precore running in front of us, lowering power lines, shutting off power to power lines so we could get under. They were actually taking down power lines? Yeah, we lowered quite a few power lines to get through with the height of these loads. Wow. It's hard to convey how enormous this machine is. The crane on it is as tall as a 35-story building. The whole process of disassembling, moving, and reassembling the drag line is expected to cost Cloud Peak $20 million. But Hawks explains it's worth it because the dragline does a very specific and important job at the coal mine. It'll sit down in the pit and actually dig the dirt off of the coal. Unlike coal in the east, which is far underground, the coal in the Powder River Basin is very close to the surface, sometimes just 40 or 50 feet below it. That's meant coal has always been cheaper to mine in Wyoming, four to five times cheaper than, say, Kentucky coal. The drag line is used to scrape off the dirt or overburden that sits on top of the coal. It can move several semi-trucks worth of dirt at a time. 
Hawk says that earth-moving ability is becoming more important. As the coal seam heads further west in the Powder River Basin, it gets a little deeper and deeper. So as we mine west, we have to move more overburden on top. And a drag line is the cheapest way to remove that overburden. A lot of the shallow, easy-to-mine coal has already been mined. And now, companies are finding they have to move a lot more dirt to get at the seams. An Inside Energy data analysis shows between 2001 and 2012, individual miner productivity in Wyoming dropped 32%. That's the main reason Cloud Peak is moving its drag line. The coal seams at its antelope mine are starting to slip out of reach of existing equipment. This drag line will help offset the need to purchase an entire truck shovel fleet to move the dirt. But it's still a huge expense, and the drag line isn't actually going to boost productivity. It's just going to allow Cloud Peak to stay on track. Economist Rob Godby says the increasing cost of mining comes at a bad time for coal producers. The more expensive it is to get to the surface, the more you have to charge for it, and the more likely it is that there's a cheaper substitute out there somewhere. Substitutes like natural gas, which has been on a streak of bargain basement prices. Combined with regulations like the Clean Power Plan, which would reduce demand for coal, it's a losing trifecta. An increasing cost just makes one more challenge for a coal miner. And more challenges for the state. Even without federal regulations, Wyoming is going to have to address the fact its largest industry could be losing its competitive edge. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. When we come back, we'll hear about a new opportunity for high schoolers in Natrona County and the latest on the battle over smoking inside Casper's bars. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Bob Beck. In one year, a new high school building will be open to students in Natrona County. The first day of class will debut as a bold endeavor to transform secondary education in the school district that's been in the works for nearly a decade. It's a shift to academy-style learning where students' lesson plans and activities are designed around their career interests. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, Natrona County educators are hustling to create a system that will bring results. Inside a Casper art gallery, a few dozen teachers are seated in a circle listening to a presentation chock full of team building buzzwords. Second, we want to do an introduction and that's why the circle is mission critical. This is a design camp for Natrona County's new academy-based learning center. These educators get together weekly to plot a reinvention of the high school experience for kids in Casper. When we open our school, it's going to be the first time for a whole new way of learning. Brian Avazian will lead one of the four career academies here. We want to make a very, very big first impression, not only on the kids who enroll for that first year, but on the community as a whole, the larger educational field. Avazian is with the Health Sciences and Human Services Academy. There's an academy for engineering, one for business and agriculture, and another for the creative arts. They'll offer a range of professional certifications, but Avazian says this won't be a trade school. Yes, there are those opportunities, but really what we're trying to do is, no matter where a kid is in terms of what they see as a possible career path, we'd like to be able to tie their day-to-day learning in school with an interest or a passion. So if a student likes, say, construction, Many of her lessons at the academy, in math, English, history, all of it, will be construction projects. The high school graduation rate in Natrona County is about 74 percent. 
Chad Sharp is principal of the new academy-based school, which is a big part of the district's plan to get more kids to graduate. I think that our board of directors has set a noble goal in saying 85% of our kids need to be graduating from our system by the year 2019. I really hope that we get to 90, 95%. And heck, if I'm really crazy, I'm going to say 100%. Sharp's building is not a traditional high school. No mascot, no prom. It's a program open to all juniors and seniors in Natrona County. Students who join a career academy will leave their home school to spend half the day doing hands-on learning activities with groups of students and teachers. And then the challenge to the educator is to frame it in such a way that history is there and that English is there and that math and science are there. Then I think the experience for kids is magical. I think it will be a place that kids will, will thrive in. This model exists in Rock Springs and Gillette, but is new for Natrona County. The academy-based learning center will have a few things in common with an existing program, though, Casper's Star Lane Center. Anyone else have a good idea? Like the new academy's center, Star Lane is a half-day program that brings kids from their high schools across the county. Here, they practice what's called problem-based learning. Austin King is a sophomore at Natrona County High School and Star Lane. The problem that we're working on now is micro farming and it's dealing with world hunger and we're supposed to try and figure out how to take farming and put it into a smaller area to help people in cities that can't do that. We are supposed to figure out how to apply what we're learning to the real world. The Academy's program will use a range of similar interactive learning styles and whether it's problem-based or something else, these are all hands-on learning methods that go beyond traditional lectures and quizzes. Star Lane freshman Cleo Vlastos says this stuff works for her. You know, in a lot of your classes, you're like, well, I'm not really going to use this information in real life. But when you're actually working on a project, it's like, oh, I can totally see myself using this information. And I don't know. I just think it's a lot more useful. Star Lane is not career focused. And that aspect of the new academies piques Cleo's interest. But she says she's not sold yet. So I'd like to see, you know, what kids say about it next year before I decide if I want to do it because I think it'd be a good experience if you're not sure what career you want to pursue because then you can kind of try different things and narrow it down. Despite class visits and info sessions, many students and parents still don't know much about the academies. But back at Design Camp, Academy coach Molly Voris says, like it or not, the program is going to transform the entire school district. So we would hope that we see this as an opportunity to unify our district and make a bridge as opposed to making an island. Each academy and career pathway was designed with input from local employers in the field. The $26 million facility is being built in West Casper and will welcome as many as 1,000 high school students each day. But it's not going to look or feel like Casper's other high schools, says academy coach Brian Avazian. We've got a statement to make. Not that we're better than other teachers or other schools, but we have a different approach. And a lot of kids would be more successful if school ran a different way. This new building with something to prove is lacking at least one thing vital for maintaining a good impression, a name. Its old one, CAPS, was dropped this year over a trademark dispute and the district's high schools are working together on a new one. The facility, formerly known as CAPS, opens next year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
To put it mildly, eliminating smoking from bars has been tough in Casper. Since 2000, the Casper City Council has twice approved smoking bans. They were both overturned. Now the issue is up for another vote. The public has a chance to undo the council's support of smoking in bars in November. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck says it's being framed as a battle of business rights versus health. Few people have worked on tobacco prevention issues longer than Jerry Jones. She pushed for the Great American Smokeout in the 1970s and continues to work on a variety of cancer prevention issues. She was excited in 2000 when she heard about city council efforts to make all public places in Casper smoke-free. Some kids from the high school went to the council and said, things should be smoke-free. The council agreed with the students, but a public vote overturned the ordinance. Jones was disappointed, but she always thought Casper residents would come around. The issue did come back in 2012, and the city council again passed a smoking ban. But several council members who supported the ban, including Kimberly Holloway, did not serve another term. Holloway says the new council carved out a number of exceptions to the ban, including allowing smoking in bars. In my opinion, it really gutted the ordinance, gutted the spirit of the ordinance. Holloway and others fought back, and now the issue will once again be voted on by the public. She says there should not be exceptions. This is not about infringing on private property rights. This is not negating anybody's rights as a business owner. As a business owner, you do not have the right to to knowingly poison people. Moonlight Liquors owner Al Curtis could not disagree more. His establishment is one of just five where smoking would be allowed. It's a huge facility with room for dancing and pool. It's also relatively busy for four in the afternoon on a Monday. His concern is that if smoking is banned in Casper, his customers will go elsewhere. My customers here, last time this thing went through, they have to drive five minutes over to Evansville and they can smoke any bar they want. Or they can go to Bar None or Mills. Curtis says that's exactly what they did the last time. I lost about uh, 20% of my business, which is a pretty good sum of money. My employees lost money, and they all have house payments. They have car payments. We also have a 401k plan. We have health insurance here. And if I lose this smoking issue, we're going to have to lose some of these benefits. It's not just the owners of businesses where smoking is allowed that are upset about the ban. Pat Sweeney owns two smoke-free bars, but he also objects to it. He says business owners should be allowed to do what they like. I don't think this is the answer to do social engineering on the backs of small business. And that's what the American Cancer Society and these folks that are pushing this agenda are after. Sweeney owns the Wonder Bar in Casper. Oddly enough, his patrons this night were mostly for the ban. Kathy Eason says allowing smoking in bars infringes on her rights. If they're going to do a bad habit of smoking, let them do it at home or outside. But because of them, there's five places I can't go to if I would choose to. And I don't think that's fair that I have to stay away from places I might want to go to. One patron, David Dugan, though, had the minority opinion. He's worked in bars throughout Casper and is convinced that smokers will go places where they don't have to go outside. Especially with winter coming up, smokers are going to choose bars that you can smoke in.
He'll be voting to allow smoking in bars. Research has shown that it's hard to say what the economic impacts will be in town. Tiffany Comer-Cook is a senior research scientist with the Wyoming Survey and Analysis Center. She says Wyoming and elsewhere has shown that removing smoking from bars has led to no net economic impact. So that's not to say that individual bars and restaurants may not have been impacted because of the ordinance, but on a whole, there was no economic impact. While people don't like smoking bans at first, that changes. She has a couple of examples. We surveyed Laramie residents back in the, when the ordinance passed in Laramie in 2005, and we surveyed them in February prior to the ordinance passing, and then again a year later, and we found that both support for smoke-free bars and restaurants increased by 14 percentage points among Laramie residents. Cook says they got virtually the same results when Cheyenne passed its ordinance. Whether the reaction in Casper will be the same remains to be seen. The vote will be held November 3rd. If you want to ban smoking in bars, you want to vote no. If you want to uphold the city council's exceptions to the law, you'll vote yes. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. When we come back, we'll hear about why Wyoming is shutting down so-called historic horse racing machines and explore a project aimed at finding value in coal's most problematic byproduct. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Aaron Schrank. The horse racing industry in Wyoming was hit with a huge financial blow a few weeks ago when state officials voted to suspend operation of historical horse racing machines in the state. Those machines offer play similar to a slot machine, but the outcome is tied to a horse race from the past. The Wyoming legislature approved historical horse racing machines two years ago, But in late September, the state attorney general released a report saying the machine's bonus rounds were illegal because they relied on chance, not skill. The machines could be closed for business as long as four months while the vendor that sells them rewrites their software. As Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports, that could place an unbearable strain on live horse racing in the state, which relies on income from the machines to survive. Before historical horse racing machines were suspended in the state, the Wyoming Downs Racing Parlor in Laramie was a popular place to be. Lou Shellhaas is a regular here, and on this afternoon, she's on a hot streak, up to 750 bucks from a $10 bet. Now this is when I should go home, right? But no, and it's been the button again. <laughs> Wyoming Downs lets you bet on live horse and dog races. But Shellhaas is playing the parlor's most popular attraction, a historical horse racing machine. These games have the lights and sounds of a classic casino-style slot machine. But while slots determine whether you win at random, historical horse racing machines are tied to the outcome of a past horse race. Before you hit the big bet button, you see a display of horse racing stats. And you're supposed to use those stats to pick your three cherries or dancing cowboys or whatever symbol the game uses. When Wyoming's legislators approved historical horse racing in 2013, they did so on the basis that it was a game of skill. So you'd think a winner like Shellhaas would know a thing or two about horses, right? Eh, 
Um, I don't know a thing, you know? Shellha says she basically just makes her picks at random. So does player Brandy Tamoxley. Everybody don't know about it. Everybody just comes and plays the casino. Across the country, historical horse racing machines are legal in some places traditional slots aren't. Here in Wyoming, that has meant that gamblers don't have to drive to the casinos on the Wind River Indian Reservation to play them. But even though the players might not always care so much for actual horse racing, the horse racing industry cares a lot about these players. There will be 32 days of live horse racing in Wyoming this year, like this sunny Sunday afternoon in Casper. That's up from four race days before historical horse racing machines were legalized, says race operator Eugene Joyce. There would be no live horse racing in Wyoming if not for historical horse racing. And that's the simple fact. In Wyoming, only guys like Joyce, who actually put on live horse races, are allowed to operate and profit from these machines. His company, Wyoming Horse Racing, is projected to bring in about $11 million this year, 91% from historical horse racing machines. A quarter of that goes to local and state taxes. Joyce says the games are just a way to bring the thrill of this afternoon in Casper to a wider audience. Make no mistake, it's 100% horse racing, but it's packaged in a way to appeal to a new customer base. Well, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. The bottom line is they are a slot machine. Jim Conrad runs Wyoming's Wind River Casino on the Wind River Indian Reservation. He says more business at Wyoming Downs means less business for reservation casinos. Idaho lawmakers legalized historical horse racing machines two years ago, but recently banned them after a coalition of state tribes raised objections. Conrad points out his casino is the largest employer on the reservation. We have 800 employees. 90% are Native American. And uh, if there's slot machines everywhere, it will affect the number of employees we have. But Jim Conrad and others who don't like historical horse racing machines here in Wyoming no longer need to be concerned, at least for now. By order of the Wyoming Perry Mutual Commission, which regulates horse racing in the state, the machines are shut down until their bonus rounds can be rewritten to rely on skill, not chance. Perry Mutual Commission Director Charles Moore says the commission had to shut the machines down to comply with the state attorney general's report. But that doesn't mean historical horse racing is going away forever. We're all looking at this long term and hopefully with the permittees moving swiftly to rectify the concerns and the problems that that we see, um, we can get this back on track. The operators of historical horse racing machines are less optimistic. The vendor that sells the games says that it will take 12 to 15 weeks to update their software. Wyoming Horse Racing LLC President Eugene Joyce says he doesn't know if his company can survive that. I don't know any business that can take a hit like that and still survive. So it's going to be, if that is truly the time frame, it's going to be really tough. And the two companies that operate historical horse racing machines in Wyoming are also the only two companies that put on live horse races which means even fans of old-fashioned live races have a stake in these games' future. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. As we heard earlier in the program, Wyoming has started looking for new ways to use coal beyond simply burning it for power. The state's also looking 
looked at new ways to use a coal byproduct that's become a serious liability called carbon dioxide. The recently announced $20 million Carbon X Prize is intended to spur innovators to address that very problem. Wyoming Public Radio Stephanie Joyce sat down with Paul Bungie of the X Prize Foundation to learn more. What exactly is the Carbon X Prize? Uh, so we at the X Prize put out giant prize competitions to target some of the world's biggest grand challenges. And in this case, what we're looking at is carbon dioxide emissions, right? The main greenhouse gas that drives climate change. And the $20 million Carbon X Prize, the NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize, is a chance for teams from anywhere in the world to create technology, a solution that can take CO2 that's coming out of a power plant and instead of letting it just go to the air, turn it into something useful, turn it into a product. And the teams that can turn the most carbon dioxide from a power plant into one or more products that have the highest net value, selling it into the marketplace, win. How is this different and why are you choosing to go this route as opposed to carbon capture and sequestration? Yeah, so this is essentially sort of the missing missing piece that's been overlooked a little bit, which can be called carbon utilization or conversion. But really, it's instead of just capturing it and burying it underground, could you turn it into something useful? So many things in our daily lives, building materials like cement and, and, and the clothes we wear, they're made out of carbon. So you could take that carbon dioxide and convert it into useful products, and that starts to give people, entrepreneurs, businesses, a chance to, to make some money taking the CO2 directly out of the power plants so that it's not driving climate change. You mentioned that part of the prize is, is who can create the most value. Is part of the prize related to who can sequester the most carbon as opposed to simply reusing it and then subsequently emitting it? Or is it simply who can create the most value? This prize yeah, is focused directly on creating the most value, really because what we want to do is start turning on businesses and industry to the opportunity that's here. So uh, the fundamental premise of, of the prize, I think, could be questioned in that what we really want to be doing is, is eliminating CO2, incentivizing actually the creation of CO2 because it, it is, is a marketable product seems like it might be going in the opposite direction of where a lot of people would suggest we need to go. So how would you respond, I guess, to the criticism that creating a market for CO2 is really not going to help us in the, in the long run? Uh, the, the, the Carbon X Prize targets the tragedy of the commons that CO2 is free to waste and put into the atmosphere and drive climate change. Taking any portion of that that we can, and instead of just letting it go into the atmosphere and turning it into something useful. And if you can actually scale that up because you've got market forces looking to do it, then that's a potential game changer. It's critical that we address that CO2 and give every possible incentive to every possible player in the world, businesses, individuals, governments, give them the chance to actually address that CO2 in as many ways as possible. I think a lot of people would say what we should actually be doing is just transitioning to a fossil fuel-free energy environment. Why is that not the solution instead? We at XPRIZE believe there are a myriad, there are a ton of solutions that are needed for a grand challenge like like carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. There is no grand challenge in the world, be it poverty or illiteracy or access to health care, that is, has a silver bullet solution to it. And the same is true of, of, of climate change and, and the CO2 that's driving that. As a result, we believe that we need a huge basket of solutions that are associated with it. So explain to me how the world will look when this prize actually is awarded. 
The great thing about an X Prize is that we're out there to incentivize other brilliant innovators, the, the solvers of the world to do something amazing. And instead of being able to predict what's going to happen and write a plan for 2020, what we do is put an incentive out there that we know will lead a lot of people from all over the world to start putting their efforts into new innovations, new technologies, new solutions. I wish I could tell you exactly how amazing it's going to be. What I do know is that there are going to be technologies that can turn carbon dioxide into a useful product and start to shape markets. That's a massive transformation. What I don't know is just how broadly defined they're going to be, how amazingly interesting they will be, or how that might inspire others that are working on, on every other element of, of the CO2 challenge. Can you give an example of a past XPRIZE that has spurred the kind of changes that you're hoping this will? In a totally different field, but our, our, we have 10 years of history now seeing what happened with the first X Prize, which was a $10 million competition to privately fund a spaceship that could go into space twice within two weeks. At that time, uh, teams got together and spent more than $100 million trying to win the $10 million. And there was almost no private space industry in existence. It was NASA or the Russians. And at that point began what we have seen a decade later, which is private space flight. And that includes about a $3 billion a year industry, everything from nanosatellites to SpaceX and, and private rockets. That's the kind of leverage and change and transformation that uh, you really can't see in advance because you don't know how all of those solvers, all of those innovators that just want to bite at the apple, a chance to solve something great, what they're going to end up doing. But I'm, because we've seen it before, I'm optimistic we're going to see it again. How is Wyoming involved in this? Every X Prize needs a place to actually test so that the teams can prove what they've done. Not just have a great idea, prove it. We're, we're having in Wyoming, with the support of the Wyoming government as well as, as other partners there, a, a giant integrated test center that's being built right next to a coal-fired power plant. And that's going to serve as one of the final locations for the, for the five finalist teams to take their technology. They're going to be able to go straight to Wyoming. They're going to build out their technology at the integrated test center, and they're going to be able to then compete for that final grand prize by spending several months actually converting the carbon dioxide that's coming from an actual working Wyoming power plant and turning that into incredible products. And we'll see exactly what those are, but Wyoming's going to be at the heart of a transformation in, in carbon technology. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Wyoming Public Radio Stephanie Joyce speaking with Paul Bungie of the XPRIZE Foundation. Wyoming's Red Desert. It's treasured for different reasons by different people. For some, it should be left alone for its natural beauty. For others, it should be open to use for resources like energy and grazing. But those two different ways of seeing the desert can create conflicts with how to manage it. And that's put the Bureau of Land Management in a tight spot as they tackle a new broad-scoping resource plan intended to last two decades. Much of the desert is currently open to development, but conservationists want to see that plan include more protected wilderness areas. As one of a two-part series on the Red Desert, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a flight over the area to see how wild the place really is. When I was a kid, my dad worked in an oil field somewhere near Kilpecker Sand Dunes in the northern Red Desert near Rock Springs. One day, my brother and I got lost out in the sand. One of my dad's fellow roughnecks had to come rescue us. So I'm a little nervous in the Red Desert. But today, I'm conquering my fears. I'm flying in a tiny plane crammed with five others over those very same sand dunes. See if you can 
guys can see up ahead, we're starting to see the Kilpecker sand dunes. This is one of the largest migrating sand dune complexes in the world and the largest in the lower 48. The wind moves these sand dunes, a ribbon of yellow that seems to go on forever in both directions. Beyond is the iconic notched shape of the boar's tusk, a single rock jutting up on the plain. Nearby, tiny dots graze. It's wild horses. Our guide is Wyoming Wilderness Association's Kyle Wilson. He argues that more of the land below us should be protected as wilderness. The Red Desert is the most misunderstood landscape in Wyoming. I've heard from many people who drive through Wyoming that that part of the state is a wasteland, and it's, it's completely opposite of that. In fact, he says, it's home to a rare herd of desert elk and the longest mule deer migration route in the world, bringing them from the Tetons all the way down to winter here. But while it might not have fences, the Red Desert does have plenty of roads. From above, I see them crisscrossing everywhere, no destination in sight except gas wells. You really get an idea of how many roads are out here when you look from above. And it's the number of roads that's the biggest block to convincing the U.S. Congress to designate the northern Red Desert's many study areas as true wilderness. That's with a capital W, a title reserved for only the most pristine lands. No human structures, no machinery, no wheeled vehicles, and no roads. Wildlife biologist Eric Mulvar is the author of Wyoming's Red Desert, a photographic journey. Well, wilderness has a very specific legal definition under the law. It means it's a place where the landscape is predominantly natural. It means it's a landscape which doesn't have heavily developed roads. Less than 3% of the northern Red Desert qualifies for wilderness status. The rest of its 3.5 million acres is already too developed for that designation. But Mulvar is worried energy and mining development could encroach on even that 3%. He says the BLM doesn't even require energy companies to get approval before building more roads. The BLM is not like the Forest Service, where the Forest Service has a system of roads that each one has a number, each one's on the map. The BLM pretty much treats these roads as if they belong to the oil and gas industry, and, and any kind of secondary use is incidental. But BLM Rock Springs field manager Kimberly Foster says making these lands available to energy development is part of their mission, too. If you're in a pristine wildlife area that's kind of the highest and best use of that, then, then that's what we'll try to protect. If you're in a you know, heavily developed area that has a high potential for oil and gas resource recovery, then you know, maybe that becomes the highest and best use of that area. Foster says she doesn't know what the upcoming plan will include, but she does know a lot has changed in the last 20 years. Sage-grouse almost went extinct. The energy industry developed new, highly effective extractive technologies and the longest mule deer migration route was discovered. She says whatever decisions are made in the new plan, they won't have a chance to be revised again for 20 years or more. Foster says that means they have to think long-term for everyone with a stake in the area. Because ultimately we're just the, the keepers of the land for the citizens, so that's kind of the biggest challenge is just trying to resolve those conflicts. Foster says her office will release a draft of the plan this next spring for public comment. Wilderness advocates hope the public speaks up, even though they also recognize that making a case for the Red Desert as a pristine wilderness could be a tough sell. For one thing, historically, most folks have been in a hurry to get to the other side, whether pioneers on the Oregon Trail or motorists on I-80. Like me, a little nervous about getting lost in all that wide open space. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
Next week is part of her series on the Red Desert. Melody will visit an oasis where two Wyoming artists have made a retreat for themselves next door to an oil and gas field. We'll wrap up our program today in Yellowstone National Park. We'll hear about grizzly bears and other topics. That's coming up next on Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Bob Beck. Cody area lawmakers want the federal government to take grizzly bears off the endangered species list. They say there are more bears than ever outside Yellowstone. But others say the numbers don't matter. Penny Preston reports. Many Cody area residents have advocated for grizzly delisting for years. But talk about delisting intensified this summer after a grizzly killed a hiker in Yellowstone. Wyoming's Game and Fish says a grizzly track was found this fall near a new bike trail being constructed on BLM land about a mile south of Beck Lake in Cody. Park County Commissioner Joe Tilden says he's getting calls from people all over the county who are seeing more bears. This summer we had them just north of town and so they desperately need to be delisted. You talk to a lot of the environmentalists and they say well because of the lack of food in the high country that's pushing them down. But you talk to the outfitters and the hunters that are in the high country, and they're seeing just as many bears up there as we have down here. The Interagency Grizzly Bear Study Team, or IGBST, reported in Cody in April that there were about 757 grizzlies in the entire Yellowstone ecosystem last year. The number being reported by some local media is much higher. Wyoming State Senator Hank Coe. Depending on who you listen to or who lies to you, there could be as many as up to 1,200 in the in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But anecdotal sightings do not necessarily define a population size. For instance, in the early 2000s, there were so many grizzlies on the North Fork near Cody, 60 Minutes did a special on them. There are not many bears visible on the North Fork now. The IGBST recommended turning over grizzly bear management to the states in 2013. And carnivore ecologist Dr. Jim Halfpenny of Gardner, Montana says it's time. The purpose of the Endangered Species Act is to take the might of the federal government and take care of a species that is in trouble until we can lift it up where it will survive in perpetuity. And then we give that management over to the state. I think we've probably reached that point with the grizzly bear. But a retired Cody ecologist spoke against delisting at the interagency bear meeting in Cody. Chuck Neal is still against it because the Yellowstone population is separated from other populations genetically isolated. If we had 3,000 bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem, the bear would not be ready for delisting. The Yellowstone grizzly still is living on an island. He's a population at risk as long as he lives on an island. We have no connectivity with other bear populations at this time. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition is also concerned about genetic and food source isolation. Jenny DeSaro says the GYC is acquiring easements from landowners to establish a path from Yellowstone to Glacier National Park. Their connectivity is crucial for their survival. So Greater Yellowstone Coalition is already on the ground working on, on how we can keep connect the crown of the continent and um, the Yellowstone populations. The GYC says grizzly bear survival depends on three things. Number one is keeping their core habitat available and accessible to them. DeSaro says that means managers must maintain low road density within the ecosystem. She says GYC wants another thing for the bear's survival, 
fewer conflicts with humans. She points out her organization gave a quarter of a million dollars to install new bear-resistant food storage boxes in the U.S. Forest Service campgrounds surrounding Yellowstone. She applauded the Wyoming Game and Fish Department's free bear spray giveaway to hunters, but GYC is withholding judgment on delisting. Greater Yellowstone Coalition is really waiting for the delisting rule to be released. The challenge is in the details. Supporters of delisting say Wyoming wildlife managers would do a better job of controlling grizzly numbers and distribution. They feel that will reduce conflicts between humans and the bears. From Cody, I'm Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. The National Park Service celebrates its centennial next year. To mark the occasion, National Geographic magazine is devoting its May 2016 issue solely to the country's first national park, Yellowstone. And not only is the issue focused on one place, all the content has been written by just one author, a first for the publication. David Quammen is the writer and journalist who's been tasked with this feat. He tells Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard he got involved at the brainstorming stage and thought he'd perhaps like to write one article for the issue. And then near the end of that process, the editor-in-chief, Chris Johns, said to me, well, David, we want to have a single voice for the text in this issue. We want to have unity of voice. So why don't you just write the whole thing, please? And I thought about that for two seconds and said, uh, I'd be delighted. And for those who aren't familiar, haven't heard about this particular issue, can you explain a little why Yellowstone was chosen as sort of the single topic for this centennial celebration of the national park system? Well, first of all, because Yellowstone National Park is not just the first U.S. national park, but the first national park per se, in the world. So the National Park's idea really began in its modern form with the establishment of Yellowstone in March of 1872. It's also the largest national park in the lower 48. It is this amazing, nearly intact, temperate, north temperate ecosystem. It's a precedent-setting place. It's an extremely important place. It's iconic. It's known all over the world. So it seemed appropriate that we do a special issue on it. So what are some of the things that you're hoping will come across in this issue about Yellowstone? First of all, the fact that a park once protected is not protected forever. We have to continue to protect it. It was established in 1872, but the story wasn't over as of 1872. The story of the park was just beginning. We didn't really know why we had established this national park. There was very little talk about preserving populations of wildlife. There was zero talk about preserving an ecosystem. We had to discover and invent the values and the meanings of Yellowstone as, as the decades passed, and that's what we've been doing. One of the main focuses of this issue is that Yellowstone is gradually being degraded, that it's being eaten away by these 10,000 scratches. Right, Dave Halleck, the chief scientist, called it the creeping crisis when he said to me, I'm afraid we're losing this place. And that's what he was talking about, death by 10,000 scratches. And what he was referring to um, were all of the many challenges that the park faces, climate change, um, invasive species, the increase in visitation, more and more visitors coming in, 3.8 million visitors to Yellowstone so far this year. 
So all of those things are what Dave Halleck, this wonderful scientist, was talking about when he discussed uh, the creeping crisis, this prospect of death by 10,000 cuts. Having said that, though, it's also important to say that by, uh, by Dave Halleck's measures, by the opinion of a lot of people, Yellowstone National Park and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem are in better shape in many ways than they have been since the establishment of Yellowstone back in 1872. The wolf has been reintroduced. The grizzly population is back up. The elk population is high. The bison population is at least as high as it can be within the constraints of Yellowstone Park. So there are a lot of good things, a lot of ways in which Yellowstone is more healthy ecologically and better managed than it has been for decades, for a century and a half. So it's important to keep these two ideas, two seemingly contradictory, or at least counterposing ideas in mind at the same time. Visitation, I think, is going to be one of the most contentious issues about this because there is a growing interest in these public lands and growing visitation every single year. And that's one of the ways that they stay alive, these kinds of parks. At the same time, that visitation is also one of the factors that is potentially degrading the ecosystem. How do we balance those two, this increased demand for the parks, but also recognizing that that could be one of the ways that the ecosystem is in danger. Right. Well, for instance, I gather there were horrendous traffic jams going in and out of Grand Teton National Park this summer. Not just bear jams, but you know, jams at the, the entry gates. Um, it's important for people to prepare themselves for the possibility that there may be limits on entry, limits on how many people can enter Yellowstone or Grand Teton in a given day, or limits on how you may enter. Um, it's not necessarily that Yellowstone and Grand Teton are getting too many human bodies. It's just as likely that they're getting too many cars. So there may come a time in the near future where uh, people are, are helping decide the question of whether Every person who shows up at the gate with a private automobile is allowed in with that private automobile. One would hope that people will do more than scream bloody murder that their own personal rights are being constrained. David, you're a journalist, a reporter who usually covers Africa. You live in Bozeman, Montana. What was it like and how did it feel to cover an issue essentially in your backyard? It felt very good to stay home for most of a year, year and a half, instead of getting on planes for Central Africa, um, to do the reporting driving my own car around the ecosystem. Uh, but more importantly, it felt great because it gave me an opportunity and a privilege to see things, to take the time, and to get the access in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that, despite having lived here for 30 years, I had never seen or had not seen enough of. David Quammen is a reporter and a journalist. He is the sole author of the May 2016 National Geographic issue focused on Yellowstone National Park. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today. Carolyn, thank you. Pleasure talking with you. That's our program for today. If you'd like to hear it or individual segments again, 
Simply go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. You can also find our podcast both on that website and sign up for it on iTunes. We also encourage comments on our program and good ideas for future shows. We also invite you to follow our reporters on Twitter and follow our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page and follow Wyoming Public Radio on Instagram. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.